Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats, like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate <laughs> is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. When it comes to bra shopping, the most important thing is finding the right fit for you. Using thousands of measurements, Third Love designs its bras with the breast size and shape in mind so they fit impeccably and feel even better. The details make the difference, from premium fabrics to expert design. Third Love has the most sizes of any bra brand. They have cups from A through H and bands up to 48, and each size is designed specifically for a perfect fit. And 50% of women fall between standard cup sizes. So Third Love invented half cup sizing. It is hands down the most comfortable bra you'll own. They have tagless labels. There's none of that little itchy, scratchy thing in the back. The straps that won't slip and ultra soft smoothing fabrics and lightweight, super thin memory foam cups. And I have third love bras and I love them, but I'm going to use this space to tell you uh, that I actually had someone on Instagram message me that they had used the show code to get a third lip bra and tried it on. And she has a hard time finding ones that fit and it fit her. And she was so happy. She actually sent me a picture, which is a little weird, but I appreciate it. Um, it's a great looking bra, but I knew that. Uh, and you know what's also cool about Third Love, I have to say, is you don't have to get your uh, measurements done by some stranger with cold hands. You can find your fit in 60 seconds online, and then you can order and try it on at home. No awkward fitting room experience is required. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com friends now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That is thirdlove.com friends for 15% off today. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and you are listening to With Friends Like These, a show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. My guest this week is Teresa Mateus. She's a trauma specialist and also a specialist in healing. And this interview is probably one of the best examples of what I want to do when I say talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. She specializes in getting people to decenter themselves if they have privilege and getting people to come to the center if they have been marginalized. And that is work that is ongoing in the world, um, but as she and I both say, is particularly necessary now. So stay tuned. Teresa P. Mateus is a trauma specialist, professor, and co-founder of the Mystic Soul Project, a people of color-centered project at the intersection of contemplative spirituality, activism, and healing. She's also the author of two books, Mending Broken, A Journey Through Stages of Trauma and Recovery, and Sacred Wounds, A Path to Healing from Spiritual Trauma, with a third book on life as a pilgrimage coming soon. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm I'm very excited to talk to you because we I feel like on this show we talk a lot about brokenness and a fair amount of about trauma, though I don't we don't always call it that, but we talk about, you know, what's going on in the news and that can feel, you know, pretty pretty wounding. Um but we don't talk a lot about healing. And our mutual acquaintance Diana Butler Bass said, you know, this is that's the thing that 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 you can help help us with a little bit. Um, and I guess my first question for you actually is how did you come to be a trauma specialist? Well, I think uh, speaking out of Henry Nowen's book, The Wounded Healer, 
uh, I, I have met rare few people that have gone into working with pain that haven't, it hasn't in some way originated from their own personal experience of pain. So for me, it was much the same. I am a trauma survivor. I was um, sexually assaulted by two different perpetrators in my late adolescence. And that led me to um, years of post-traumatic stress disorder. And my own recovery journey also moved me through finding my own way for the most part because the traditional psychotherapies, at least at the time, were not particularly helpful. And so as I moved through my own process, I thought that there has to be an easier way to do this. And so I wanted to be somebody that could facilitate supporting people on that journey in a way that felt like it was helping them in, in the places where I had to sort of do it alone. And you you talk about your project is a, a people of color centered project. It makes sense to me that that is needed in the world. Um, but what does that actually mean in practice? Yeah. So, and again, much the same way that my trauma work came out of personal experience, this project came out of personal experience for me, uh, living at sort of cultural intersections. I'm a, I'm a Colombian adoptee. So both of my parents are white American and British and, um, and so I grew up sort of between two worlds and very much not feeling connected to my own person of color identity and what did that mean in terms of being Latinx, in terms of being indigenous from South America. And so in my own sort of pursuit of, of how do I find the path to my own way and my own fullness of identity, I realized there was a real absence one in my field of mental health of resources that were specifically written by and for people of color, also in various spiritual disciplines and areas, Western traditions and Eastern, were um, in the West, dominantly still white teachers, white practitioners, white authors. And then in the world of activism, I was seeing sprouting up this real energy around uh, people of color, uh, queer and trans people of color, women of color, taking the lead and the forefront and really building out what it needed to look like, particular to them. And so the combination of those factors made me think, well, there needs to be a way to center the identities of people of color in these, at these places that I thought were so crucial and critical in all times, but very much in this moment. And what does it look like to build community, create dialogues, and expand the existing resource containers so that we actually have more resources for people to access? I'm curious sort of what the practice of this looks like, because I, I you know, I'm a white person. Um, and I would say one of the opportunities that, that the Trump era has offered is white people becoming more aware of their whiteness, you know? Like it's it's it, it is something that we usually experience just as normal, right? Um, but because of all this trauma and bigotry being kind of um, pushed to the forefront, I think there's a fair number of us who are who are becoming aware of our privilege in a way that we weren't before, and want to do things to be helpful. <laughs> um. What does that, how, how does that, what does that look like? Yeah, so particularly we're, uh, Mystic Soul is described as POC-centered. And so a lot of times why people will also ask, does that mean we can't be a part of it, right? Um, and I think some of that comes out of that wanting to engage and understand and know how to help and support people of color and marginalized voices in this moment and for me, I think there are particular moments where we need to have affinity space for people to share in particular ways. Um, but also, I think as a whole, Mystic Soul from the start has been really intentional about if we're going to upend the power dynamics of the larger world, we also need to be representational of that world. So our community constructs, meaning our conferences, our gatherings, our online teachings are all for everyone. And our space has been really intentional about we want everybody to participate in creating community together in real time that is decentering the power structures that have existed and centering the voices, the ideas, the concepts and the constructs of people of color. And so that also that means that we are going to be working together towards something. And it also means there's going to be 
um, discomfort in participating in that, even even if you want to, if you come from a position that has been given more voice, more power, more visibility in the past. Um, and so being able to experiment with that, both at our conference gatherings where we have larger cohorts of people, our online trainings where we're discussing and centering the voices of people of color, talking about spirituality, healing practices, and activism, but then also inviting white people in so that we're engaging in community together, but also they are decentering themselves. They are sort of moving to the back and letting what comes to the front come from a new place. And can I ask, like, just real specifically what that looks like? Is it as simple as shutting up, you know, when you're in these spaces? I would say yes. That's all right. Okay. Uh, so it has been very much us being intentional. And actually, when I was doing um, when I was doing trauma care support at Standing Rock, I was really moved by the way that they, as a community, said just really blanketly without apologies and also without without aggressiveness about it, we are going to center ourselves and this looks like voices of the most marginalized people in the room will be heard first. And the most the people that come from the greatest amount of majority and power, so white, straight, uh, cis, hetero men, will not have there probably won't be time for your voices. <laughs> and that's how we're constructing it. And so that really gave me um, the ability to not not be apologetic about it, but also not need to be um, just make it an ethos. So it's become an ethos of of our community that we are the voices that speak that are teaching and the voices that are going to be in conversation are going to be dominantly people of color. And if there's room and time and space for white people to engage, um, then there is. But if there isn't, then that that also is the tension, the discomfort of that is also a learning practice, I think, to change those dynamics internally in ways that we don't even realize are constructed. Yeah, I, that both seems incredibly simple, but I also can imagine that it is difficult for those most privileged people to experience it. Have you seen it? Is it is it difficult or or people who already attracted the space like pretty ready to just like give up the center for others? Uh, I think it's both. And so, yes, I think that the people that are gravitating towards the kind of spaces that we're creating and us being really transparent and saying, this is what we're going to do. This is what it's going to ask of you. And you entering into it means you're agreeing to participate and also preparing people to do that um, by giving them grounding practices, giving them ways to pause and think about what's going on inside of them. I think all those equip people better, but it doesn't mean that it totally deconstructs that inner discomfort either. So I think part of our work by inviting, not creating space that is exclusive to only people of color is also continuing to have conversation about how how people can hold that and also offering up teachers and facilitators that are maybe not our organization, but partner organizations that are working more dominantly with white people. Um, one of those for us has a partner for us has been a, a program called the liberation school. And actually before our, our conference this next year, we're doing a, a specific pre-conference offering that's going to be spiritual anti-racism for white folks. And so part of that is, we're doing this pre-conference space where actually it is about your voice being centered in space that's particular um, and that's affinity oriented. And then you're also, that's going to equip you better to come into this space and deepen in the ways in which actually you move yourself to the back and you do way more listening than you do talking. I'm suddenly, of course, very self-conscious about talking right now. Um. <laughs> that conversation is a necessary, you know, it's a collaborative effort. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, but I'm also just, I'm, I'm like, I'm having a lot of flashbacks to, to different times that I've been in spaces that are meant to be progressive and how representation winds up kind of just looking like representation. You know what I mean? That that it's just like we you have people in the group who are from marginalized communities, but the leadership and the voices continue to be mostly, you know, white dudes. Mm -hmm. um, and 
I'm curious, does, does a whole organization look different if it's led by people who are, you know, traditionally marginalized? I believe so. I and, and I end up in a lot of those spaces as well, right? Progressive spaces that are seem representational, but the voices are still dominantly uh, white men. Because again, it's really hard to unwrite the scripts that you learn. Yeah. You don't even realize you're doing it. Um, but I do think so. I think our intention, being really intentional and, and unapologetic that we're led all by people of color. Our board is all people of color. Our advisory council is all people of color. Every event, gathering, and teaching we have, um, unless it's a specific sub-offering for white people, is all led by people of color, teachers, and facilitators. It does change the dynamic, I think, significantly. We're also also dominantly in our space having facilitators be uh, female, queer, um, trans, and so also subverting a variety of ways in which we create supremacy or we create hierarchy um, in all of those sub-levels that we also can do even in communities of color. And I think continue, and it's continual work, right, because we all have constructs that we've created that, that sort of power system on regardless of our ethnicity and our background. And so us intentionally doing that work internally to make sure that the external representation of us looks very different, is represented very differently. And I do think as a result, changes the dynamics of what shows up, how people show up. And also it sets a model for then the white people that are being invited into this space, um, at least as represented from our last year's conference. The white people that came were prepared for the space. They were, um, we have an application process for our conference and in-person gatherings because we want to make sure that people are ready before they're coming. So it's not just everybody come. Um, and that's for the safety and protection of everyone involved. So I was reading a description of the conference you had last year because I'm, I'm very curious about how, like, what concrete ways, like, these spaces might be different or differently experienced for someone like me. And one of the things that that you mentioned in an interview is that it, it affects that, that being People of color centered affects everything all the way down to how we construct and value time and scheduling. Is that is that right? Does how you value time and scheduling change in these spaces? It does. And also, I think, again, that's been an internal even for myself um, as organizational leadership has been a deconstruction of my own westernization of time right we have to do this exactly now and especially if you're in charge it has to happen now we have it on the schedule um i as part of our own process organizationally of decolonizing the way that we look at everything or at least trying to time was a big part of that so what does it mean to value time for what it's worth relationally rather than what it needs to look like on a piece of paper and so what that meant for us is if something if um, example is one of my um, Lakota Indigenous colleagues, Emma Eagleheart White, came and was part of our opening ceremony. And she offered smudging as a spiritual practice to the entire community. And she literally went around to the entire community. And it was interesting, both my internal process and then talking to other people that were participating in the gathering, that they had and I had um, this discomfort of, oh, oh my God, we're going to go through everyone. This is going to take forever. And then I realized I needed to not be, I needed to not have the way in which everything was happening externally built on this idea that we had to be on time, whatever that meant. And so then it took as long as it needed to take and that really set for me a precedent of um, one of our mystic soul ethos is rhythm over time. Mm -hmm. So what does the rhythm of a thing mean? How do you build relationality and intimacy and connection and community over whatever the outcome is, whatever is on the paper, whatever the agenda is that you thought you needed to accomplish? How do you go about that differently? So hold on for just a second. We're going to take a quick break. So let's clear up a few things about secret clinical strength antiperspirant. Number one, it is not actually a secret. You can tell anyone about it as I am doing right now. Two, it is clinically strong, which just means it's good, very, very good at preventing sweat, like twice as good as a regular antiperspirant. And that's why it's on the top shelf, hard to reach. Sometimes it's behind plastic. 
And three, strength is a a pretty cool word, and you don't see it on a lot of women's deodorant packaging. You don't see it on a lot of women's packaging in general. So they, you know, shaken things up with that. And you already know this, four, sweating is the worst. Four and a half, not sweating is preferable and actually pretty great. So you should buy secret clinical strength antiperspirant. Again, towards the top, reach. Be aware of your armpit. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stephon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. And we're back. You mentioned recovery when you were talking about uh, how your journey to being a trauma specialized specialist. Um, I'm in recovery from alcohol and drug addiction. It, is that what you were talking about or were you talking about something else? I was talking about trauma recovery. Trauma but recovery. I would say that um, all of the things that can get embedded in us have inherent compulsion. You know what I mean? So trauma has its own compulsion of the ways in which it has you live out in the world based out of anxiety and fear. And so um, in that sense, I would say the recovery has similarities. Well, I was thinking about it because some of the things you're talking about in terms of letting go of being the center and also letting go of even um, a certain ways of looking at time remind me of things that I've had to learn and being, you know, in a spiritual community that happens to be a 12-step community. Um, like, I, I remember when I was very early in recovery, uh, I went to a gathering of um, their people were celebrating like the 30th anniversary of the meeting. And I went there and people were just like milling about and it was a potluck and there was like 15 salads and 20 desserts, but no main dishes. And and people weren't like, there was nothing. And I remember just being like, I was furious that there was no organization. (laughs) (laughs) And I I had to kind of learn, and these are primarily white spaces, but I think that I'm trying to find a, a similarity here to help me think through what you're talking about. And so part of me in recovery, like part of my journey in recovery was was trying to just let go of that need to have everything work a certain way and to have, to make sure everything's said in the way that I want it to be said. Um, and well, the way that I looked at that, like, and again, I'll just say, uh, again, what might be kind of parallel is if I'm in a meeting, an AA meeting, and I feel like I have something really, really important to say, but like, it's not my turn to say it, or the time's going to run out before I say it. And I can sit there and I can be anxious about it. Or, and this is what, you know, I kind of wound up getting to, I can just take a few breaths and have some faith that if it's really, really important, someone will say it. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yes. And that's why for us also as an organization, there's sort of a triad of um, activism, healing, and then what we're calling contemplative spirituality um, can also be called mysticism. It's also deeply embedded in the recovery model, even though it's not necessarily called such, this sort of let go and let God 
grounding in yourself. A lot of the practices and disciplines that have been integrated into 12-step are very much the same thing. Um, and so for us, it is uh, that sort of space is eternal and is universal. And helping people ground in that space lets go of lots of constructs, right? So Western construct and colonized construct is one of those, but also self-driven and individualistic, right, which comes out of some of those. And control, which can come out of anxiety. Um, all of those parts of ourselves that we feel like we have to hold on to that aren't necessarily the deepest part of ourselves. We spend a lot of time in our community building, in our programming, and even our teaching, everything involves some version of that sort of grounding in what is deeper than, than the sort of surface life that we can spend so much of our time living into. I talk about my faith um, on this show, not a ton, but regular listeners are probably familiar with it. And, and it's something that I've personally been able to take a lot of um, strength and healing from. Uh, it ha- I happen to be Christian. But I've become aware through doing this show that there are people, of course, that experience the concept of Christianity as not just neutral, but like actively harmful in their lives. Mm-hmm. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about when you talk about spiritual trauma? Yes. And that's across all kinds of spheres. So my second book that I wrote that on that particularly, um, there's case examples or anecdotes from a variety of different experiences. So it's everything from extreme sexual trauma and abuse and cult-like behavior um, or cults inside of, of particular communities. But it's also being negated by spiritual spaces. One of the most common in the conservative Christian dynamic would be homophobia, Mm -hmm. right? And also anti-woman, you know, repression of women, silencing of women, which all also lead to the ability to perpetuate other violences on people, right? So it starts with silencing people or telling them that they're negated in some way. And then it can lead to higher levels of of external violence and abuse. Although I would say all of those are significant abuses. They're just less visible. Um, And so, yes. So I think it's complex. A lot of people that I have worked with recently are at various levels harmed by spiritual or religious spaces. Um, And so it's also helping. And part of the deconstruction of Mystic Soul is helping people to um, to find their way inside of many of many people growing up in Western traditions that as they begin to reclaim parts of themselves, realize they're also the very things that, that murdered off, killed off, uh, cordoned off the other parts of themselves, their indigenous roots, their ancestral spiritual practices. So whatever people's harm is, it's about how do you hold the tension between something that can be deep and rich, that that greatest well of um, the divine that I call God, and and also come to terms with how the human experience of that can be really harmful still. One of the places that erasure has happened in American Christianity has been um, black evangelicals. Um, I've had Jamar Uh, Tisby as a guest on this show, and he's someone who has kind of made a journey just away from what usually is thought of as evangelical Christianity because of the structural racism that he no longer could tolerate. (laughs) Um, And he, he, he and I were talking about it more recently, and he sort of expressed this uh, I would say almost um, genuine, uh, you know, questioning. Like he, he said, you know, I went to you know school. I read all the books. I kept on telling them, you know, this this needs to be part of what we do. Like this reconciliation is is part of part of you know what we practice. And and he felt like there was no amount of authority he could gain that would, would make people listen. And of course. You know, part of it probably had to do with the fact that just he was black. So I'm curious about that that erasure in particular, especially because I, I read something from you that says that the origins of our Christian mysticism and the roots of our contemporary monasticism are black in origin. 
and we've yeah. forgotten that. Can you explain that a little bit? Yes. Uh, so the the original Christian communities and cultures, mostly coming out of Africa, Egypt uh, region, so Middle East and Africa, uh, were when when Christianity moved into the center of empire uh, at, at its sort of beginning of merging with with the Roman civilization of the time, there was a collective of people who said, we don't want to live in the center of that culture. We believe it's going to annex us from the sort of spiritual rootedness that we found. And so they went off into the literal desert, which is why they're called the, the founders or the originators of mysticism in the Christian tradition are called desert mystics. Because they went off literally into the desert and built communities, which we might call intentional communities today, or monastic communities, and, um, and lived together by the principles of what they felt were grounded, which were this sort of this um, mystical Christianity, this grounded in contemplative practice, in the sil- being silent so that they could hear God and doing that in community. And they built out what was the beginning of what is now called in monastic communities rule of life. And we built out one of those in mystic soul specific to our sort of context and time. Um, and they were people of color. And uh, there's not a thing. I spent 20 years studying under the sort of preeminent Christian contemplative teachers, and not once did anybody ever mention that they were people of color. Now they are maybe in the last couple of years, because I think um, due to some of us that are saying you can't erase that part, you actually can't not say that part. It's it's important that you don't say that. It, it says something that you don't say that, that you're, you don't even realize how you're making that invisible. And it's important that you do say that, because it's actually something that needs to be critically seen as, as the beginning of the history. Um, and so I think it's important when we're talking about giving voice to people of color in faith spaces and spiritual spaces that particularly, at least for my Christian contemplative lineage, the Christian, the contemplative, the, the grounding in the deep quiet um, that's found, that you can find God in my own tradition, that we say where it came from, because that actually matters, because it's become so white in our contemporary world. And that's not actually the origin of where it came from. And I think a lot of that erasure of of past and history and ancestry becomes a lot of the ways it becomes easier and easier to invisibilize people in, in base spaces because they become the power driven sources are often white are often male. Um, and, and also often straight and not, and in general, not women. So you can also have people of color face spaces that maybe aren't part of the white, maybe evangelical world, but I see be, be very homophobic, you know, mm-hmm. very um, patriarchal. And so, so for us, at least in Mystic Soul is saying, can we look at how all these parts are being exclusionary in various ways? And much of our community is made up of younger people of color who are tired because they have no place to go. So white, uh, particularly Christianity, says it's great. Bring all your gayness, all your queerness, all your transness, you know, at the, but, but we don't really have people of color here. We don't know how to represent that. And people of color churches will say be as brown or as black or as Asian as you are, but we don't really have any space for your queerness or your transness. We either not including it all or we just don't even know what to do with it. And so people are feeling really um, like they don't have a spiritual place to go and spiritual home. And I think particularly in this political moment, more than ever, people need spiritual and healing grounding. A lot of my work um, recently has been talking about and to movements um, and organizers around trauma and movements. And I don't think we can stay grounded in the way that we need to to move forward in this very difficult and traumatic moment without deep spiritual grounding and deep healing components built into the ways that movements move forward. So people need spiritual space, but I don't think the fullness of what's needed exists right now. Let's talk a little more about healing specifically. it doesn't it comes up a lot on the show, but we don't always focus on it. And I'm wondering if if you can speak to people who feel, you know, I don't think traumatized is is necessarily too strong a word. Um, although I think a lot of people are aware of whatever privilege they have in the level of trauma, right? Again, i th- I think one of the opportunities in this era is that white people know 
how good they have it. Straight people know how good they have it. Um, cis people know how good they have it. Um, is there anything that you can offer kind of in a real world way to help people who are feeling so, you know, spiritually bereft in this moment? Well, I think community is the key. So building and finding community that resonates with what you want to hold. And some of that might be creating new community and some of that might be finding community that already exists in your own space and location. Um, And part of what Mystic Soul is trying to create with some of our online programming is space and place for people to start to build that maybe if they don't know how yet to generate that where they are. But I think finding places that allow you um, that are, that are want you to show up in your whole, as your whole self. So I think it's first and foremost um, places where you don't feel like you have to be part of yourself. And those, depending on how marginalized you are, are not always easy to find. Um, I find a lot of people finding those spaces initially virtually through Facebook groups or through Twitter threads, like this sort of new media version of connection, and then engaging that in real life in baby steps. But I think finding places where you don't feel judged by parts of who you are is important. I think having space or spaces that can offer you practices or where you can practice in community with one another in a contemplative way, whatever that means, whatever helps quiet the noise that is external and helps you ground in something deeper than our own selves. And so that might be meditation groups that could even be anything like a nature group or a walking group or things that just help you to feel more centered and grounded in the chaos of the world and giving yourself the permission to create time in your life to go and do Uh, in that way and and realize that in and of itself it is constructive i talk a lot of time about the that this sort of grounding in our beingness is like plugging our charging our phone that you have to plug into the source um so that you can get energized otherwise you're going to drain out which i see a lot in movements i see a lot in um even healers that are providing care um People, we are living in a world that constantly calls us to burn ourselves out one way or another. And so we have to give ourselves permission to do the work of, of taking care and nurturing ourselves and nurturing ourselves individually and also in community with one another. And so I think part of that also for people of color goes back to a reclamation piece, which I think is important, finding the ways to reclaim what has been lost and what has been taken in a way that feels healing, which can mean grieving what has been lost and how it's been lost and the violence of that. And also finding ways to reclaim and own and hold what your own histories are, whether they are fully known or it may just be more a general history. For a lot of people, I've seen them building out rituals that are based on some of the ancestries that they're uncovering or revealing that they come from. For other people, it's reclaiming names. So my, I've just recently um, taken back my birth name, which is Mateus. So that this name is a going back to my very origins of who I, I was before I was adopted, um, owning all the other parts of myself, but really claiming names. And I see a lot of people doing that right now that are younger people of color, taking back names that either they had before or owning new names that come from their family history, their, their um, ethnic lineage that maybe were erased out over time. These days you can get practically everything on demand. Um, I took an Uber here. Um, I also had some groceries delivered today. Um, This podcast is done on demand. Um, Basically, almost anything you want. I also rode one of those electric scooters the other day on demand. When it's convenient for you, that is what everyone wants these days because it can be delivered in almost every area of your life. So why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? With Stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office, my favorite federal service, right from your desk 24-7 when it's convenient for you. Buy and print any official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, using your own computer and printer, and the mail carrier just picks up. There's no need to make an appointment. Uh, There's no need to, to ask them or pay for it. It's the U.S. mail. It's a free service. You just click print and mail, and then you are done. 
And you can send anything with it. You have packages. You want to do it overnight. You want to do it next day. I send Christmas cards uh, through stamps.com. That is very convenient. And right now, my listeners have a special offer. You would use the code FRIENDS and you get up to $55 free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week free trial. Again, that's $55 in postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage. We could also call it a podcast microphone at the top of the homepage and type in FRIENDS. That's stamps.com and enter FRIENDS. Have you noticed... There is nowhere to go for good basics anymore. Like, I won't name any names, but there used to be a few places that um, they weren't like uh, the hippest places, but you could get, you know, you always could rely on, say, their T-shirts or their khakis. Uh, And those places have become kind of trendy and, frankly, have kind of crappy clothing. But Everlane is different. At Everlane, they make long-lasting, beautiful essentials, and they go to the best ethical factories to do it. They're quality basics you can actually feel good about. Everlane only makes premium essentials for men and women, and they use the finest materials without traditional markups. They show you what their real costs are so you know you are not overpaying. And they want you to know what you're paying for and why. They are radically transparent about every step in the process from the materials they use to the factories they work with. And because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Everlane's clothes look better, cost less, and last longer. They make essentials like the Cotton Crew t-shirt, the Silk Short Sleeve Square shirt, which I have, the Cashmere Crew, which I also have, the High Rise Skinny Jean, the Mid Rise Jean, and more. I also have the Mid Rise Jean. I also have their shoes, which are not in this copy, but are really, really cool. I have discovered the cool thing that I like about them is they have a very high vamp. I didn't know what that word was, but someone wrote in to let me know. High vamp. Uh, It means they cover up your toe cleavage. Anyway, Everlane's timeless essentials are just what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. And right now, you can check out my personalized collection at everlane.com slash friends, and you will get free shipping on your first order. That is everlane.com slash friends. My personalized collection, everlane.com slash friends. You mentioned, you know, uh, the more on the margins you are, the harder it is to find these contemplative spaces. Uh, You know, for those of us who aren't on the margins, and it's easy to find these spaces, and who still feel kind of at a loss, like, I guess I'm basically saying, sort of, again, you know, what can white people do? What can a well-meaning white person do in this moment that that is meaningful? Well, and I think... Having the access and the resources to some of those, um, whether it be practice spaces or communities, are important. I think putting yourself into places and positions where you're going to not be the center, where you're going to have to intentionally practice not using your voice, but rather listening, I think is a very important practice in this moment. So whether it's going to community meetings or getting involved with organizations that are um, serving or supporting what's going on right now. I mean, one of the things more than ever we need are our care and support providers or just peer support people that can show up. And sometimes that means ready to do something. And sometimes that means ready to, for it to be told that we don't need you and to be able to hand, to work on dealing with that. And then I think education, right? So I think people are very, white people are very willing in this moment to do work that maybe wasn't as visible to them that needed, that they knew needed to be done before in themselves on their whiteness, on their privilege. And so I think get finding opportunities, there are more and more I see every day where you can go to workshops and you can go to trainings and you can educate yourself so that you can also educate the other people in your community that may not be seeking those things out because that power and privilege can also go back into white spaces and can teach other people on the things that you're now seeing that are visible because they're still invisible to a lot of people and the bridges to changing that, to growing people, to helping them learn are often from people that look like like your neighbors, right? You're talking to a neighbor um, about something that might make them uncomfortable. They're not necessarily going to listen to me, but they might to you. And so it means being uncomfortable at various levels and being willing to do some work to learn how to do it better. I think that that sounds uh, really like powerful work to do. And so what, what I'm hearing from from that is 
for me personally, what I could do is go into communities that I know need help. There may be uh, communities of color and be willing to just do whatever work they they have to be done. Right. Um, and and listen and to whatever that means uh, and also be willing to be told there's no work for me. Is that is that am I hearing what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. I think it's it's twofold, right? So it's, be, it's being willing to show up for people of color and whatever way they need it. So that means sometimes they'll say go home and sometimes they'll say lift these boxes, right? <laughs> and, and a lot of times they're not going to say go up there and tell everybody what to do, right? So it's going to be a different approach to right. you know, the power and positionality. And then it also means the other half of that is going back into white spaces right. where you're going to be heard more, more resonantly and more um, with more openness and willingness from other people. Uh, to go talk to them and be uncomfortable at that end by being the person that may be pushing the boundaries in your community and context around trying to make other people more aware of their own privilege and what that means. Right. Calling people on their bullshit. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And doing it <laughs> relational, right? Because there's relational currencies right. you hold in communities of um, that are white that a person of color doesn't automatically have. Yeah. Uh, Kamau Bell sometimes talks about, um, he actually uses the term white pride. I'm not, I'm, I'm using it his way, which is sort of ironic, which is he wants white people to, you know, come get their boy, as it were, um, to take responsibility for how, for what our, our other white people do. In the same way that it, it's sort of a better version of how white people expect black people to police each other. Like, we should police each other when we're when we're doing things that are, you know, help support white supremacy. Like we should say something about it to each other. Uh, and that is uncomfortable. It is. It's not always it's it's definitely not fun being that person. Um, but I always think of something. I think it was Rembert Brown that said it on the show about how, um, you know, uh, if white people understood what it, how hard it is to be anything else. You know, um, they would they would know how easy they have it. And, his, and I think he said something along the lines of like, I don't think white people could stand to be anything else. Like, you know, we don't have the strength. I'm saying we, me, um, that it takes to, to be anything other than than have had the privilege that I have. We both referred to this moment um, as being a particularly um, important time or damaging time. Uh, I. And then I wonder if you could talk more explicitly about that. Um, you've been doing this work for a long time. Are we at a moment where things are worse than they have been because of the pers- the people that are running this country? Or is this just more of the same, which is something that I hear sometimes from my friends who are people of color? Uh, I think, again, I think it's a sort of contemplative phrase to say both and. But right. I, think <laughs> I think it's both and in that, yes, it is always existed it's been less visible to people with more privilege right so it's more visible to everyone than it's been before and also i think there is something that we need to recognize that's particularly dangerous about moments in time where people with a lot of power um who hold those uh white supremacist frameworks and identities are giving people free license to pretty much go further, right? And and free license to do with little to no recourse. And so I think that the danger of this moment is that everything that already existed and was there and was dangerous is being given the power to turn the volume up. And so I think we also need to acknowledge that that is considerably more dangerous, not than any other moment in history. We can point back to multiple moments where people um, where people groups have been interred, where they've been pushed out, where um, there's been all kinds of phobias of people groups. But given the kind of, um, I think also social media moment where, you know, white supremacy groups can go viral and begin to mass, um, mass create forces and organize in a particular way, we do have to also acknowledge that it's a, it is a particularly dangerous moment. And in that way, it also is a particularly traumatic moment as a, as a whole people, as a cultural consciousness. Do you think about whether or not we're going to be able to heal from this? 
Well, I believe based on the neuroscience, one of my favorite neuroscience words is neuroplasticity. And what that means is the brain can change. And so I believe in the scientific principle that everything that changes can change again. And that's been the principle on which I worked with trauma clients for over a decade in terms of their own healing is even when it feels impossible, technically we are able to change. Our brain is able to change. Our patterns of thinking are able to change. And I do believe whatever happens, we have the capacity individually and collectively to heal from the most horrific things. So I do think it's possible, but I also think it's, it's more difficult the more dangerous um, our environment is. But this is there is opportunity here. Um, that that's something that I return to a lot of the time. Um, uh, there is a reason why people use the the word woke to describe those who are aware of injustices. I do feel like a lot of people are waking up um, right now, and and maybe they are seeing just structures that have been there f- forever, but um, they are being seen. And I think once you see white supremacy or patriarchy, it's hard to unsee it. Yes, I think there's a necessary urgency that this moment has created that is also, in its pain, also deeply um, an opportunity uh, for us to change and grow and transform. And that is a wonderful place to end the conversation. <laughs> I, again, really appreciate your time. And I'm excited to, to actually dig a little deeper in, into what you're doing. Thank you again. Yeah, thanks so much. And that is it for this week's show. I will remind you, if you're a super fan who listens to these endnotes, you probably already have rated and reviewed us on iTunes, but please do that this week. I'm going to keep it short because I need to practice the self-care that I hope you are already practicing. But please come back next week. With chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary dairy. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.